Hello, this is not Richard Dreyfus, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to the 430 Movie Podcast at 430movie.com. If you like Star Trek, you'll love Inglorious Trexperts, in which our Trexperts, Mark A. Altman and myself, Darren Doctorman, talk Trek every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Star Wars fan, check out the Electric Surge Network's new podcast, The Rebel and the Rogue, in which two diehard Star Wars fans discuss a galaxy far, far away with special guests every week. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me as always is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Beautiful. I'm excited (laughs) about our topic today. We are going to be talking about not one, but two unmade movie the mummy movies maybe more than that yes Uh, i mean there's (laughs) steve will go into that a little bit there's a lot uh and that was the voice of our guest today mr mick garris uh who you would know from so many things kind of a journeyman jack of all trades filmmaker podcaster uh journalist author um, Mick has a great podcast called Postmortem, which is now currently part of the Fangoria Network, right? Right, right. Um, early this year. Yeah. I just listened to your Stephen King episode uh-huh. all about The Stand. Yes, 25th anniversary. And his first podcast, by the way. That was his first podcast <laughs> it ever? It was indeed. Wow. Yeah, first and only. Well, if anyone was going to get him to do it, it was you. <laughs> I, I looked this up the other day because I was trying to like list them all in my head, and there's so many. Um, so there's several people who've made numerous uh, Stephen King adaptations. That's true. Frank Darabont yeah. being a well-known one. But I think Darabont and most people tap out at three, and you're like, you've got one of those Wayne Gretzky stats. Where, like, sort of eight, I think. The person is, uh, in second place is so far. Yeah, you're seven or eight, right? Yeah, yeah. That is a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a wonderful collaboration. I mean, anybody who's lucky enough to work with King wants to do it as often as as it's possible. Um, do you have any coming up, possibly? I've written a a, a pilot that's based on one of his stories, but it has not yet been set up. So okay. it's premature to talk about that. But uh, nothing is more fun than working with King. So I hope it works out. Although. The ones that we work closely together on, he actually wrote the screenplays himself. Like Sleepwalkers. Sleepwalkers and The Stand and The Shining miniseries. Um, The other ones after that, well, he wrote um, Desperation as well as a feature, and then it was adapted into a three-hour TV movie. But um, he wasn't really directly involved in the movies after that that we did together. And much of anything else, really. He's not a guy who's on the set for yeah. most of the productions. <laughs> he was there for most of The Shining and probably half of The Stand and uh, two hours on Sleepwalkers. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure, meanwhile, he was waking up every morning and writing 20 books. <laughs> it was really funny when we were shooting The Shining at the uh, uh, Stanley Hotel in Estes Park that inspired him to write the book in the first place. 
he was getting up every morning and, and working <laughs> on the Green Mile. Oh, wow. And he would be writing, pumping out pages. He'd print them and then give them to me. I was the first person to see much of the Green Mile as it was being written that's at the Estes, wow, that's amazing. Estes Park. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of your best-known projects is Showtime's Masters of Horror, an oh. anthology series. And you have a new anthology movie, I was about to say coming out, but by the time this airs, it will already be available. Right. Uh, it's called Nightmare Cinema, and it has the same philosophy of getting really great filmmakers and giving the keys to the asylum to the inmates and giving them <laughs> full creative control. And it, 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 I'm really excited about it and can't wait for it to be unleashed. So. Uh, and who are some of the, or who are the filmmakers? Well, me and uh, four great ones. Um, Joe Dante, <laughs> uh, Ryuhei Kitamura from Japan, who did The Midnight Meat Train, Clive Barker's story. Uh, David Slade, who did um, Hard Candy and 30 Days of Night. And the pilots for American Gods and Hannibal and just lots of great television as well as great movies. And then Alejandro Brugues from Cuba, who did uh, Juan of the Dead, which if you haven't mm. seen it, oh, it's is a lot of fun. fantastic. Yeah. Um, Let's just dive right in, um, build, kind of building up to the first of these Mummy movies. Let's talk a little bit just about how you got started, because as we all know, there's so many different avenues into the industry, but you have one of my favorite kind of getting in stories, just because you ended up doing so many random things right up top there. Well, it's hard to tell what you mean by start, because there are so yeah, many yeah. different ones. But, um, I was just thinking of the fact that you played R2-D2 <laughs> on the well, Oscars, right? I operated R2-D2, operated uh, yeah. the remote control R2-D2 on the Oscars. My first official movie job was as a receptionist for Star Wars. So I answered the phones for 150 bucks a week saying, Star Wars, may I help you? <laughs> well, and, how does somebody uh, get that kind of job? I was working at Tower Records. And I was a journalist. I wrote for Cine Fantastique back then. Um, and uh, I'd written for a lot of newspapers, and I'd interviewed a lot of people. Back when I was in high school, I'd, my first interview was Ray Bradbury, and my second one was Rod Serling. Then I did music journalism and interviewed people like uh, Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix when I was uh, 16 years old. Um, and so uh, a friend of mine who was another journalist... Um, he had told me that they were looking for someone to work in the Star Wars office. And I was working at Tower Records at the time and thought, wow, what a great opportunity that would be. And I didn't have any idea what the job was, wasn't qualified for anything, <laughs> and met with them and found out it was a receptionist job for, like I said, the kingly sum of 150 bucks a week. <laughs> and um, they hired me right there. They needed somebody immediately. And so I started working for, for Star Wars, answering the phones, and then I was recruited to learn how to do publicity and the like. So they'd already shot the movie? Yeah, the movie okay. was made and was released when I got the job. And uh, then doing all these personal appearances, it became the phenomenon that everyone knows now. But at that time was a $9.5 million gamble that nobody thought would be uh, successful even. Mm -hmm. It was a real crapshoot. But then um, they gave me the opportunity to do personal appearances with the Star Wars, with the R2-D2 robot. And uh, I was writing press materials for American Graffiti 2, more American Graffiti, 
And then uh, when they were talking about the idea of Return of the Jedi, I mean, Revenge of the Jedi at that time. (laughs) Um, And so it was just an opportunity to get my foot in the door of the movie world. And journalism in film and making film are two really unrelated (laughs) uh, uh, occupations, but in this case, one fed the other, and, and that was how I got my foot in the door doing that but very circuitous to becoming a screenwriter and and director and producer that maybe had something to do with it but doing it was mostly the publicity which opened the door for me to hire myself to do making of documentaries and things like that and that's kind of where postmortem started right yeah back even uh, on the Z channel, which was a pay TV channel here in Los Angeles before there was an HBO or Showtime presence here. They showed two movies a week, like at a movie theater, alternating these two movies. And I went to them with, uh, I started writing for the Z channel magazine, doing coverage on the films that were playing on the channel in their monthly guidebook. And I proposed the Fantasy Film Festival, where we would interview filmmakers of genre films that they were getting in anyway. And so that really was my first experience with video interviewing, doing it on television with a very young, nervous guy. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Steven Spielberg was on, John Carpenter was on, Toby Hooper. I mean, we had really incredible people. And it was because the Z Channel was just happened to be in neighborhoods on the west side of L.A. where that cable company that had the Z Channel was in the homes of Beverly Hills, Santa Monica, where the movie Elite lived. And so they watched this show. And it was really interesting to have Steven Spielberg (laughs) on and say, I love watching your show. Really? (laughs) You know, because it was a very, very low budget show. Uh, And that was kind of the beginning, too. Um, uh, for listeners who are not familiar with Mick, especially if you live in L.A. and are in any way involved or in the orbit of uh, kind of genre filmmaking world, Mick is very much the sort of nexus of it. It seems like you know <laughs> everybody. I have to imagine you are constantly getting texts and emails from your friends with like, hey, do you have so-and-so's number? Because they just assume you must be friends with them. I am the Rolodex <laughs> of horror, I'm afraid. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's nice, but I, I do know a lot of people within the genre, and a lot of that came out of the, the Masters of Horror dinners that, that eventually led to the Masters of Horror series. But just a group of dinners with horror directors that I put together that for a while happened every couple of months or so. And uh, that is like over 15 years ago now that That they started. That show was amazing, though. I loved it. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I'll never forget buying, had to buy that Takashi Miike one. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) because Showtime wouldn't show it. Oh, man, that one. I loved it. Imprint. 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 And I loved... Oh, man, to this day, I always tell people, I love Pelts by Argento. Yeah, <laughs> It yeah. is insane. I love that movie so much. Uh, that, oh, that's, well, what do you, it's not a movie. It's uh, that episode. We'll <laughs> call them movies. Yeah, we'll call yeah, them movies. Yeah, but, they're one-hour movies, but they're movies. Yeah, that's my favorite thing he made last is Pelts. Yeah, I, I was really excited. I mean, can you imagine being called producer on films by <laughs> Toby Hooper, Tario Argento, mm-hmm. Takashi Miike, John Carpenter. I mean, I still, to this day, can't believe that that was my job. And is that streaming? 
somewhere, or do you have to get the Showtime I, I app? It, I think it is streaming now. I don't think Showtime has it oh, because they okay. only licensed it. But I think I saw it streaming somewhere. It may be on Amazon. It may be on Amazon, but I don't think it's free streaming. I think there's another uh, a, a channel like Shutter, but a shitty version that, <laughs> that doesn't have anything you've ever heard of. Hopefully I think it Shutter may be will on get that. It eventually. <laughs> Here's hoping. Um, yeah. And am I remembering correctly that your first actual like? script writing job was that on amazing stories yes the first time i was hired as a, well i did when i was doing special genre publicity at avco embassy at the time that joe dante was doing the howling and john carpenter was doing the fog and david cronenberg was doing scanners uh they hired me to do a script called the philadelphia experiment and uh, i did a couple of drafts of that but uh, it was not reflected in the movie that was eventually made by the yeah. same company. <laughs> is that when Carpenter uh, was attached? Uh, it was before Carpenter was attached, but uh, I was the first person involved with it. And then they went to Carpenter and various other people after that. Um, and it changed quite a bit. Um, it was much more a horror movie when I was doing it. Um, There's a whole other best movie yeah. never made. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, if I can even remember that one. <laughs> but that was like 1980. Um, but uh, yeah, that was that, that was the beginning, uh, and and being the opportunity to write for Amazing Stories, as you can imagine, your first writing job, having Steven Spielberg call you at home and say, "Hey, we're doing this TV show. Would you like to write this?" And then I found out years later I was the first writer hired to do it because I had done the the making of The Goonies, uh, and it was the first day of shooting, and I was setting up the lighting to interview Spielberg on the on the location up in Astoria, Oregon. And he said, ah, you must do a lot of these making of things. And I don't know how I had the chutzpah to say, uh, I, I'm trying to do less of them now because I'm really trying to make a go of it as a writer. Because, you know, you never want to be the asshole with a script in your back yeah. pocket. <laughs> and uh, he said, oh, really? We're, we're looking for writers for this new show I'm doing called Amazing Stories. And coincidentally, at the same time, I was lucky enough to have gotten an agent. And that agent had sent a script of mine to Amblin. And they were doing coverage. And the coverage apparently was, well, I, I know it was fantastic because they sent it to me later. <laughs> and uh, so when Spielberg came home from that trip to Astoria, Oregon, he read coverage after having just talked to me about the show. And I was the first one to be asked to, to write an episode of the show. Right place at the right time. No kidding. Um, talk about amazing stories, <laughs> right? Yeah. And what was your first <clears throat> feature? Was that Fly 2? Um, I was hired to write right around the same time. Well, the first one would have been Batteries Not Included. Okay. Um, and right around that time, I was doing kind of family-oriented stuff, fantastical family-oriented stuff because of the Spielberg connection. And so I was hired to write um, Hocus Pocus at that time called Disney's Halloween House. <laughs> I didn't but realize that started that far back. Eight years before it was shot is when I wrote the first script. And uh, so Fly 2, um, Batteries Not Included, and Hocus Pocus were all around the same 
time. So I don't even remember the order. Probably batteries not included would have been first, yeah. And I found one called Spirit City USA around 1988. Spirit City USA was a pilot that oh. Clive Barker and I did. Uh, it was an idea that Clive had, and he was still living in London at the time. So I was staying in this grody little room in a fancy hotel called Brown's Hotel. Lonely as hell. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, and my room was. It was really tiny. And so every day I would go over and sit with Clive for a couple of hours while we would talk about it. And then I would go off to my room and write the uh, script pages. And then the next day, go through the same process and the like. So that was an hour-long pilot uh, that was written for ABC, which was not really in the Clive Barker business in those <laughs> yeah. days. Not that anybody was. And what yeah. was that show really going to have been if it had got picked up? I, it basically was, uh, there was a, a magician named Roy Winchester, and um, it involved past lives and things. He accidentally, he, in the Hollywood Magic Castle, he accidentally opens up a vortex between here and the afterlife and accidentally releases 50 spirits that have to be caught and brought back before all hell breaks loose on earth. And so each episode would be the dilemma of one of these ghosts and some of them were evil, some of them were benign, some of them were broken hearts. So it would be a real variation of characters, but Roy Win Winchester and his magic, which is bullshit magic, is suddenly confronted <laughs> with real magic. Mm -hmm. And it was a brilliant idea Clive had, and it was a really fun script that, uh, who knows, nothing ever dies completely. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, Sounds like fun. How did you connect with Clive initially? Because this is a perfect segue yeah. into the first <laughs> Mummy movie, which would have been a project <clears throat> yeah, I, uh, that Clive was going to direct, right? He was. Um, Clive was signed on to CAA. At the time, I was uh, a client of CAA, and so was Stephen King. We're all there at the same time. But they brought him to Los Angeles to meet the industry. And they knew that I was a big fan of his books. Uh, my wife had given me a copy of one of the books of blood that just blew my mind. Uh, and so, you know, the quote that Stephen King gave, a, a blurb to Clive's books was, I have seen the future of horror and his name is Clive Barker. That's a good quote. And that made <laughs> Clive's career, uh, at least in the United States. So I met him at this party at one of the CAA agents' homes, and we hit it off, and they put us together when Clive was looking to partner with someone. He, even though he had written screenplays himself, I think he's more comfortable being the idea man, and, and in screenplays at least, letting someone else do the, the heavy, well, his is the heavy lifting conceptually, mm -hmm. but someone else actually filling out the, the characters and the plot lines and things like that. Um, and so how did the mummy kind of enter the picture? Okay, I had made my first two movies, so this was 1990-ish, I believe you told me. <laughs> so <laughs> I had done the Timeless Classic Critters 2 as a yes. writer-director. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I had done Psycho 4 after that. So it was at a time I'd, I'd established myself as a director and not just as a screenwriter. And in the genre, my genre cred was getting good at that point. And so the idea 
Well, Jim Jacks and Sean Daniel. Sean Daniel used to be a vice president of production at Universal, and he did all of John Landis's movies. Um, and Jim Jacks was with Circle Films, which did Blood Simple. And so that was his entree to the business. Um, the two of them formed a production company at Universal, and uh, they thought the title Clive Barker's The Mummy was a sure thing. <laughs> and I would have thought so, too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so um, that was the first thing that Clive and I worked on together, although I also uh, adapted his, his story in the flesh as a feature for me to direct at Warner Brothers. I wrote the script for oh. that. And so there's a lot of movies yeah, that never got made that we're going to hit why, on. <laughs> that's why this <clears throat> podcast will be on forever. <laughs> ever and ever and ever. So um, Clive had this really outrageous idea about the mummy, and it took place in Beverly Hills, and it had to do with high society and the arts and the museum world and the pretensions of all of that. And uh, a a, uh, a mummified secret chamber beneath Beverly Hills. <laughs> and it was insane and extremely sexual and twisted. And this was at the time, again, I'd been writing, you know, Batteries Not Included and Hocus Pocus <laughs> and other family-friendly fare. This, it was only family-friendly if you were a member of the Manson family. <laughs> so, um, but uh, it was a really fun time. And I love Clive and working with Clive. You know, we had done, I think we did the pilot script for Spirit City first. You might know better. Yeah, that's in I'm, 1988 that was yes, announced. Yes, okay, so that was that was first. And, and we had such a good time working together that, uh, that the, the Mummy project was, was a no-brainer, that uh, they came to me and, and we set it up. And I wrote a couple of drafts that were really outrageous, a movie I would love to see, and Clive would be laughing all the way through the pages as we'd go over <laughs> them together. And it was very sanguinary and, like I say, very twistedly erotic. And we turned it in, and to this day, I've never heard back from Universal. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, no one has ever said, you know, we're not going to do this. This stinks, or this is not Universal's type of movie. Or nice work, boys, but just um, scared them away from ever yeah. contacting. <laughs> dead <laughs> silence. Dead silence. Uh, well, Steve <laughs> found this great little blurb. I think this is in Fangoria. It was an interview with Barker where he was talking about it, and he noted that there was a whole kind of crying game element to it. There was indeed. There was some <laughs> early transgender uh, sexuality in this, and uh, and. Everything was up for grabs uh, when we were doing that, and no one had given us any any restrictions of any kind. And when Clive Barker's name is in the title, you can expect it to be outré and stretch the boundaries of of I don't want to say good taste, but let's say good taste. And um, and uh, so yeah, that was very much a part of it. Yeah, I, I feel that Neil Jordan probably went all Terminator 2 and went back and cleared it from existence because it would have just barely beat The Crying Game to the theater. With, cause it, wow, the, yeah, I guess you're right. Because it starts off, I believe, with him being born as a... I believe it starts with a boy being born and then throughout the film, I guess, 
later on the movie like Species, the girl goes through all the male characters, and then at the ending, it's revealed that she was the the prodigal from the opening. I and wish I remembered it as well as you do. <laughs> yeah, but that would have been but way before the right. Crying Game. Like wow, not way right. before, but like a year before. Wow. Okay. So, well, and that was an Oscar-winning movie. That's right. And you had this in this horror film, and like I well, said, well, and there's this great. We quote. could have shown penis before they did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is a great quote on the matter from Barker in this interview, where he says, "A few la- few few years later, Miramax had a huge hit out of a little movie called." The Crying Game, which, if you remember, had a girl who was a few inches more than a girl, which is a very <laughs> barkery way to put that, yes. and got naked to prove it. I sent the receipts of The Crying Game over to the folks who'd rejected our perverted, <laughs> their word, version of The Mummy every week. I doubt they saw the irony. <laughs> I guarantee they did not see the irony. Um, but so this was something... They had presented this idea to Clive of like, hey, why don't you do a mummy movie? Yeah, well, uh, I think um, Sean and particularly Jim Jacks, who was uh, much more into the outre side of, of films, you know, he had kind of discovered the Cohen brothers and given them the, their first distribution deal on Blood Simple. I think he had known Clive and wanted to be in the Clive business for a while and went to him with the idea, what about... Clive Barker's The Mummy. Nothing more than that, but they knew it was a property owned by Universal. And with Clive's name on it, I mean, uh, would you turn down if somebody said, what do you think about Josh Miller's The Mummy? (laughs) No. Yeah. (laughs) That sounds great, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Slap my name on everything. (laughs) Because, yeah, he was hot at that time because he also went in for Alien 3, I believe. Yeah, there was so much stuff going on with him, and he was making deals left and right. And, uh, um, but having his heart broken left and right, too, mm-hmm. you know, after after Hellraiser was an independent hit, you know, when it's a million-dollar movie, it doesn't take much for it to be a hit, and, and that was really great for him. But having his heart broken with The Lord of Illusions and Nightbreed, every time, and Nightbreed, every time he worked with a, a studio, he basically got screwed. Mm-hmm. And we had that experience as well on In the Flesh, which um, I had written the screenplay for me to direct, and it ended up just going into development hell and nothing ever coming of it. And as a matter of fact, I don't think I've heard from Warner Brothers yet either about that. (laughs) (laughs) You got a theme going here. Yeah. Well, Uh, Richard Christian Matheson and I had written a script called Red Sleep that we sold to Joel Silver and Warner Brothers for a huge amount of money. Uh, Well, to me. Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, And... it went through so many different drafts and everything uh, by different writers and so much money put into development and the like, and it never happened. So uh, these were the two Warner Brothers feature experiences. <laughs> Red, Red Sleep was reported a lot through Fangoria. I kept reading about and I'd love to read it because I've, I've been very fascinated by that one. It's one of my favorite things I've ever worked on. Uh, Richard Christian Matheson and I wrote it together. and, and uh, it it really it was a definite new spin on uh, vampire. Do you still lore. have the script somewhere? I do, and I think Warner still owns it, so it'll never see the light of <laughs> oh, day. We might have to bring you back <clears throat> for that one. Well, there's I've got a whole collection. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, uh, we'll uh, do a spinoff of this show just yeah. about Europe. McGarris scripts that were never made. Um, yeah. Well, me taking a step back to the beginning of when you were working on it with Clive. Um, since it was kind of this radical rethinking of the mummy, 
can you maybe even remember, I mean, I know it was a long time ago. Do you kind of remember what those discussions were like? I imagine because of the success of The Fly, Cronenberg's right. The Fly, um, there was kind of this idea that you could take these classic old monster movies and do something and really modern. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in the case of The Mummy, Clive just threw it all out. There was no Karis. There was no Imhotep. There was no Anxanamen. None of those characters from the original. It was what there was was a mummy. The mummy, as in the original Boris Karloff, the 1932 mummy, didn't last long. Yeah. <laughs> there was maybe 30 seconds that you mm-hmm. see that character in you the original. You don't even see him moving, mm-hmm. if I yeah, remember correctly. He kind of like his arm twitches. Yeah, you see the uh, bandages yeah. dragging across the floor. <laughs> and so it was something like that. It really just became an original Clive Barker story that had an ancient Egypt background to it. So Clive just used it as license to do a Clive Barker story, which... If it's called Clive Barker's The Mummy, you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and Clive's material at the time was extremely um, disturbingly erotic. You know, it was <laughs> sexy and sexual, but then it would turn something that's that like, was. That's a good pull quote for the poster disturbingly erotic. <laughs> <laughs> it, for me, that would pull yeah. me into the theater. <laughs> but. Um, yeah, it, but at that time, Universal was not doing horror. They were not interested in, in doing that sort of thing. And so I knew it would never get made. And, uh, and I, I think Clive probably knew that too. But he was in the middle of a really great time for him as a filmmaker where everybody wanted to work with him. And he was making deals all over town. And. Um, like, what was your relationship with The Mummy growing up? Like, were you a fan? I loved all of the Universal horror movies. The Mummy, I thought, was the dullest because I made a joke that Stephen King has put into one of his books, but it's like, oh, here comes The Mummy. I'd better walk a little faster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like the least scary because he's easily evaded. And, you know, if you took a hose on him, he'd probably crumple. <laughs> so, you know, it'd be, it's just a desiccated body that can barely move that's animated by Tana Leaf, you know. Well, Tea. as you mentioned, in the <laughs> that it's funny that Karloff is still so famous for playing the mummy when it's really just a shot of him sitting there motionless and then he's the uh, uh, Amit Bey. Wait, is that how you say it? Amit. Yeah, well, it was Imhotep uh, as the mummy. His, like, yeah, alter Amit ego, Bay. yeah. 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 Um, just but, kind of in, like, wrinkly old man makeup. And right. then it's Lon and Chaney. even that went away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and then it's Lon Chaney Jr., who was in all the sequels, who was when the yeah. mummy was, like, well, then lumbering it around. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and uh, they knew they had a monster, but how do you sequelize the mummy if you don't have the mummy? Yeah. <laughs> you know, 30 seconds of Karloff in, in the Jack Pierce makeup only goes so far, but when it was so successful. But it it was never a favorite of mine, although I love all of them. It is a trudging creature that mm-hmm. is easily evaded. Um, and I never found it that scary. And yet, it's still like if you play with dolls, he's one of my dolls. You yeah. Know, it's <laughs> what I grew up with. And he was... Brethren to Frankenstein and and Frankenstein's monster, correct myself, <laughs> Dracula, the were the Wolfman, um, the Invisible Man, 
all of those things, just because they were part of that monster universe, I embraced uh, from from very early childhood onward. And then there was the Christopher Lee Hammer remakes in like right. the 50s. And then, Steve, do you know, oh, when were they really trying, first starting to try to remake it in the more modern era? This, um, this isn't universal, but I found this at the library and I was fascinated, so I just wanted to bring it up. But in February 1980, um, the the producer of Without Warning, right after that came out, <laughs> he was going to do, because um, he helped supply some of the money for George Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Oh. So he was going to do The Mummy for 2.5, he was going to produce The Mummy for $2.5 and have Jeff Lieberman direct wow. under, the, under the supervision <clears throat> Of Dario Argento from his script. Wow! I Wait, does that mean there's an Argento about. mummy script out there? Somewhere? Wow! 1980 February. I found that, and I I was like, uh, I just thought I'd bring it up because yeah. it, it has well, nothing Dario to do. Dario in 1980 did not speak English, yeah. so that script would be fascinating <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to see. For Jeff Lieberman to direct that <laughs> script would be fascinating. Yeah, that would be a trip. But all right, so to fast forward, um, 1987 is when. This began with, uh, there was a treatment f- from Abby Bernstein, and then that was when yeah. George Romero was some was, was kind of attached to it. He was attached to it. Uh, George was going to make the movie. Abby not only wrote a treatment, she wrote a screenplay. And um, she's a friend. She's actually just written a biography on me. God knows why. <laughs> oh, wow. But, <laughs> um, but uh, she did, and the concept that was really cool about her script was that the mummy was fast. It Ah. wasn't the, oh, God, here comes the mummy. I'd better walk a little faster. He could catch up with you. (laughs) Um, And it was, you know, a really great um, non-studio type studio movie. You know, it, it, it had the pulp elements that you want from that. And it was not something that connected with George. Um, And George, well, he wrote a couple of drafts uh, that were really good. I think two drafts that were really good, and that was the basis for what we did. But you go ahead because there are oh, other no people problem. involved in this <laughs> yeah. process. Yeah. yeah, so that was, yeah, so he filled in like 87. And then this will come important later, I think, which is in 1989, Anne Rice, The Mummy book was released. Right. Okay, and then October 1990 is when it was officially uh, announced that Mick Garris will write The Mummy along with Clive Barker, who will direct for Universal. Okay, well, that was that version, completely unrelated to what will happen in the future. Yes, (laughs) and then 92, Bram Stoker's Dracula comes out, and it's a huge hit. And then 1993 is when Alan Ormsby of Cat People was brought in. Right. And then... That was when Joe Dante was attached to direct in 1993. Right. And then John Sales came in exactly. to rewrite. John Sales comes up a lot on this show. Yeah, <laughs> I bet. And especially when you mention Joe Dante. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and around that time, there was something that said, Joe Dante has been developing The Mummy, but Buzz hears the studio has choked on its $25 million budget. <laughs> yes. So cryptic sources say Dante might not stick around. And then that's when Sam Raimi started stepped in to direct and produce and oh, then I, yeah I forgot about Sam yeah it's only mentioned I've only found it once but I don't know how long he was attached well for. Sam was also very close to um, Jim Jacks because of the Evil Dead stuff and the connection to the Coen brothers and all that so um, yeah uh, in fact um, 
Sam was brought in to direct The Fly, too, when I was writing it and came up with some concepts. You know, they loved him at Fox and wanted to do uh, something with Sam, but his ideas went so batshit crazy, they thought <laughs> maybe he's not the right guy for Fly 2. So, but there were Which great ideas. Which is already a pretty crazy movie. <clears throat> <laughs> yes, it, it is. But, um, yeah, I'd forgotten that Sam was involved, but I'm sure that was because of the Jim Jacks connection. It was Darkman for Universal? Yes. Okay, so... Interesting. Okay, and then after Sam Raimi, well, September 1994, uh, uh, Corelco Pictures, is that how you say it? Corelco, yeah. They got the rights to Anne Rice's The Mummy. And so it's a different studio, but I just think it's, you know, maybe this might come back later. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There there were almost two Mummy movies. There were almost three. three. Oh, wow. Which we will, yeah, uh, I will ask you about that. We'll probably ask you about that in a bit, how much you knew. Because I guess January 3rd, 1995, it was announced that you were set to direct The Mummy. And that was after Romero. Oh, I'm sorry. I skipped. Yeah. After Sam Raimi, Romero came back. It went back to George. Yes. And then he was rewriting um, the Dante version with uh, John John Sales's Ormsby version. I never read the Ormsby scripts or the Sales scripts. I had only read George's scripts which were incredibly well-researched and really good. Um, But George had the worst luck with studios. Things would come up. Unless it was a Living Dead movie, he couldn't get things off the ground. And this was something, he would have killed this. It would have been just amazing. Um, And his script was really, really good. Um, But things happened. I, I think this was one where they constantly were looking for a green light. It never got the green light. He was offered another picture, and he said, I've got to take this because I can't get the green light. He took the other picture, and then they came to me to do a rewrite, uh, a couple of drafts, and to direct. And his other picture fell through. (sighs) And Mm. it was just like George was the sweetest guy in the world, just a big teddy bear of a guy. And I loved him. He was great. And I always felt weird taking it over after that, but then we were deep into pre-production and it was going on and and, and George was well into pre-production on his other movie before that got the kibosh put on it. And where does this fall for, uh, you had done Sleepwalkers, had you done The Stand yet at no. this point? Okay. No. Uh, well, yes I had, yeah, mm-hmm. because if this is 95, I, I shot The Stand in 93. And it aired in 94, May of 94. So, yeah, I guess I'd had the big one under my belt. <laughs> uh, trial that broke by records, fire. right? The stand? Yeah. yeah, it was 50 million people a night in North America saw it, and it went up <laughs> each of the four nights. Wow. And it was a phenomenon. I kind of miss those days. It's funny <laughs> when you read the stats of, like, they talk about, the Game of Thrones finale as though it like broke the whole world and it right. was like a third of the number you just said. Yeah, yeah, but because there are so many channels and so many options mm-hmm. and, and people watch things when they want to rather than when it's, uh, you know, laid out for them. Um, but it was a world when network TV was what everybody watched mm-hmm. and this was, it was phenomenal. So yeah, I had I had made that before and I was working on other projects and 
It was three years between The Stand and The Shining that I didn't direct anything. Here I've got my first huge success as a director. Um, you know, the, the biggest miniseries in history, hitting all those people all in one night, <clears throat> four nights. And I was developing The Mummy. Didn't get made. <laughs> developing, you know, so many projects that, that just didn't happen, and I wasn't able to capitalize on that, that uh, huge success of that miniseries. Well, then, so in January, it, it said they were going to start in April. So, I mean, it must have been a trip to come back to Universal. And then was it, was it being rushed in development? Do you remember? It wasn't being rushed, but it was being done cheaply for a studio. <clears throat> it was a $15 million budget, which is exactly what Sleepwalkers had cost. But it was going to be on location. And, of course, when you're shooting ancient Egypt, the first thing that comes to mind is British Columbia, right? <laughs> yes. It's very that's wet, where, very yes. green. <laughs> that's where we were going to be, and that's where the archaeological dig and everything was going to be. And it's like, are you kidding me? Where are we going to find this? But, nope, it's going to be British Columbia. That's all there is to it, and that was a universal... Uh, did you have a plan in mind for how you were going to solve this issue? Well, we did. They said, oh, yeah, we got deserts here. <laughs> <clears throat> no. Uh, they showed me a place that was a cliff that was like a couple hundred miles away from Vancouver. We went there by helicopter. And uh, it was cliffside and dirt and rock. And you could just basically turn it into... A, a regal uh, ancient Egyptian cave and tomb that if you didn't shoot too wide. Yeah. So um, we were going to shoot it there. We'd done all the location scouting, all of, <clears throat> all of the, all of the work. We hadn't done any casting yet, but we were getting there. That was the next step. And um, the head of the studio, Sid Scheinberg, was. Well, let's see. I don't know if you'd say fired or he and the studio parted ways. But as the parting gift, he was given a company called the Bubble Factory was his company. And they had an exclusive deal with Universal. And he could come in and go down the list of all their projects and say, I want this one. I want this one. I want this one. And he wanted the mummy. But he wanted to make it Raiders of the Lost Mummy. <laughs> and that's how it became the Stephen Summers movie with Brendan Fraser. They they decided to go in an entirely different direction with it. Was that – wait, um, just to clarify, did that happen while you were working on it or had your version already kind of gone while into limbo? While I was working on oh. it, it ended up in Scheinberg's hands. And he said, this is great. Yeah, we want you to keep working on the script and, and uh, working on this. And then – while we were doing all of this prep um, uh, with Sean Daniel, Jim Jackson, they had an executive named Cotty Chubb. Um, we were all moving forward as if it was going to happen. But what none of us knew was that Scheinberg had something else in mind. And so things were put on hold and we didn't know why. You know, well, when do we start shooting? When do we do casting? And it was, wait, there's something going on, and we didn't know what it was. We just assumed it was the usual funding issues or casting availabilities, that sort of thing. But it turned out that Mr. Scheinberg was uh, taking a, uh, a polish to this uh, <laughs> this project and turning it into something 
very, very different uh, than what we had planned. Well, let's talk about what you had. Um, so you were building off of what Romero was working on, yeah. which yeah. was, unlike the Barker one, is did take very much from the Karloff version, but also right. found a way to make it far more of a modern horror movie. What I loved, what they have both Imhotep and Karis yes. in the film. <laughs> mm-hmm. And... You know, I didn't realize it until after I'd been working on the script for a while, but it had a lot in common with Coppola's Dracula in that it became a romance across time, which originally was the Richard Matheson script for Dan Curtis's TV version of Dracula. It was a romance that took place through reincarnation. Um, You know, the long-dead mummy becomes this vital young man in in our movie, our script, and uh, and the Princess uh, Anxanaman is the re- is reincarnated as a modern young woman in in our film, and so it was a romance, but a scary romance. Mm-hmm. You know, we did not stint. It was going to be an R-rated horror movie, and we we wanted it to be scary, and it was always intended to be that way. And so it, we weren't going to do horror light. Yeah. Uh, and that was the Scheinberg version. Well, it even did the opening uh, whole section is pretty fun and has a bit of an Indiana Jones quality. Yeah, where, yeah. Yeah, because Helen mm-hmm. is our heroine, who's mm-hmm. the Anxanaman, uh reincarnation. Uh, and there's all the stuff of them finding the chamber. And like I think there's a whole part where sand is like flooding yeah, in after absolutely. they've triggered yeah. the booby trap. Yeah. Um, and her her ex in it, Mike, I think his name yeah. is. Yeah, he he's sort of an Indiana Jones-ish character. Yeah, he's like an investigator. Yeah, who who works for museums and things with antiquities is his specialty, and so that's a big part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then kind of the the bulk of the story is that Helen wants to study everything there in Egypt. Uh, and Eleanor uh, Hirschman, there I wrote it down, uh, who's like <laughs> yes. a rich, elderly, uh, kind of aristocrat type who'd right. been funding well, the dig. Yeah, she dying. basically runs the museum. Yeah, but she's dying of cancer and she right. wants to open her mu- the museum wing that she is named after her. Right. So they bring it all back. Uh, and there's this whole subplot where um, one of the people involved in the project has stolen these special artifacts that Imhotep needs right to to, um, to do his 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 um, uh, rituals yeah. that require being done in order to stay alive and youthful uh, as well as to recruit the princess Anuxanam and that sets up a nice kind of like engine for the movie too because this guy who stole them then basically they kind of get scattered around to different characters. There was a scene I really like where uh, one of the like young interns is deduced that this like jerk um, had <laughs> stole these to sell on the black market and she basically shows up to blackmail them. Right. Uh, but I, I thought it was interesting because I'm like, oh, she's going to like try to get some money or whatever. But she was basically like, I work on all these archaeological things and then we find this cool stuff and then it goes into a museum. I just want one. Yeah. Uh, Wouldn't you? (laughs) But then that means that when she goes home and it's like a pectoral, it's called. Right. Which is like an amulet necklace. And it's like a sexy scene where she's wearing it for her boyfriend. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But then Imhotep 
and uh, Karis show up. Yeah. And... So yeah, I I love that Karis is the uh, the protector of Imhotep, mm-hmm. and that both of them have made it. Uh, Karis has a rougher time of it than, yeah. than Imhotep does, but yeah. One of the things I love about Karis is that his eyes were replaced with stones. Yeah. And yeah. it's like, that would have been like the hottest action figure for all the gore, for all the horror <laughs> fans right now. Would yeah. have had that on, it, it was so Let's get, a cool eerie. Look. Let's get a Funko Pop version. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that was, it's very eerie. Like yeah. when I was reading, I was like, wow, that's really frightening. Like, cause there's some pretty gory scenes of Karis killing people and that, and just imagining those dead stone eyes. Dead kind of, uh, they're like obsidian, so <laughs> they have a gloss to them. <laughs> but um, but yeah, they are dead stone and uh, and very creepy. I, uh, I'm pretty sure, I'd love to take credit for it, but I'm pretty sure that was George's idea. And uh, But yeah, the idea of a living creature that hasn't always been living with that looks at you through these obsidian eyes was really a visual I wanted to play with. Yeah. yeah. Oh man. And had you? <laughs> I assume you'd already started thinking about this kind of stuff because uh, one of the other horror engines in it is that Imitap is like kind of rapidly aging always. Right. So he needs to like touch people and basically just right. shrivel them instantly to absorb. Yeah, a their... little life force there. Yeah. <laughs> had you kind of yeah. thought about how you were going to do those effects? Well, I had worked with uh, so many visual effect or, or makeup effects guys. I never thought that was going to be a problem. And digital effects were still new. And the idea of incorporating that, they were quite expensive then, but we did the second morph movie ever made was Sleepwalkers. Mm-hmm. So I love the idea that we could look at somebody's life force being sucked out of them without cutting away and actually see the life and and vitality sucked out of them as they shrivel up. And you could do that without a cut. Mm-hmm. And to do it organically, you know, you have a really good working relationship between your your visual effects people and your makeup effects people. And that was really exciting to me. That was one of the the technical high points of what we were going to do with that movie. Oh, and you did have uh, Steve Johnson. Yeah. Um, yeah and, and I believe he did um, design a mummy for you as well. He did. He we, we had a bunch of mummy designs that were done, and all of that was in the works. Yeah, I'd forgotten that Steve was, was doing yeah, that. Yeah, we found this yeah. picture. <laughs> yeah, we'll post exactly. on uh, Instagram. So we wanted something that would be horrific and believable, but impossible. You know, it didn't look like just a guy in a suit. You know, Doug Jones would play him today brilliantly, but to actually be able to take things away digitally so that it would look, people would not see it as an actor wearing rubber, but as the actual creature itself. Oh, man. <laughs> that sounds really cool. Yeah, especially when you look at the pictures, you could see. Yeah, you see like the rib cage and below, and it's like, whoa, where, where's the works? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it would have been an interesting movie. I definitely see how it, would have fit in with what Universal was doing with the monsters at that time with like Wolf and Bram Stoker's Dracula and Kenneth Branagh's. Well, um, uh, Wolf and Bram Stoker's Dracula were both Columbia, I oh, think. Oh, was it? Yeah. I didn't even realize yeah. that. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Um, but they'd said so Frankenstein was the only one Universal had done themselves. I don't think that was Universal That wasn't Universal either? either. I don't so think any of been, those were. This yeah, was because, them finally trying to get into it. <laughs> yeah, with Frankenstein, as far as copyright goes, you know, 
Dracula is out of copyright, mm-hmm. and Universal owns their version of Dracula, but they can't stop Francis Coppola and Columbia. I know it's Columbia because we were shooting Sleepwalkers at the same time. Francis was on the stage across the lot shooting Dracula, <laughs> and Steven Spielberg was in the other stage on the lot shooting uh, Hook. So it was Francis, Steven, and Mick. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so, and I'm pretty sure Wolf was Columbia as well. Um, Frankenstein wasn't Universal, I don't think. I'm not sure. It might have been Warner Brothers. Uh, but, um, yeah, that's the thing about public domain. It's just, I guess my brain changed that because in my mind it's kind of amazing to me that they were just sitting on these world-famous properties and they not doing didn't anything. They give a shit. Yeah. And they don't now, you know, you the mummy, the most recent mummy is Tom Cruise, mm-hmm. and and that film, which they don't, they want a Marvel universe. They don't want the Universal Monsters universe. They they want a franchise that's an action Zowie PG thirteen uh, theme park ride, and that's not what those characters were created for in the beginning. And it it kind of breaks my heart that. None of the executives at Universal give a shit about those except as money generators. Mm-hmm. And and it's sad. They they don't have that history of growing up with those monsters. They grew up with seeing them in cartoons and comic books and, and being just cutesy little Halloween decorations and things. They don't have that, you know, I grew up with them in my heart and soul. Mm-hmm. And they were the creatures that meant a lot to me when I was growing up. They were my friends that I didn't have at school, you know? Did you watch that mummy by any chance, the recent one? I have not. It's crazy because it feels like the type of movie we discuss on this show. Like, would you believe they were going to make a mummy? Tom Cruise was going to fight Russell Crowe as Dr. Jekyll. and <laughs> Dr. Just... Jekyll, who is the... Are you serious? Mr. Ha- yeah, he well, fights... he's, he's basically Nick Fury, Sam Jackson's character from... He, like, runs this secret government agency... <sighs> That's looking for monsters. That's what uh, I mean. The mummy. Yeah. Dude, there's a scene where they go in and there's the creature from the Black Lagoon's like arm, like uh. his whole arm, like, and then Dracula's skull. And it seems like something like, I can't believe it it went through. But anyway. Yeah. That it, should be on <laughs> how did this get made. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So were you aware? So as we were saying, there was three mummy movies at the same time. There was James Cameron was going to do Anne Rice's The Mummy after Titanic. They bought the rights for $3 million. So you had that going on. And then you had Paramount was going to do The Mummy with Anthony Hickox at the same time. Were you aware of, was there? I had no idea. I think I knew about the Anne Rice one, but that's so completely far removed. Mm-hmm. They They weren't really related. But uh, The Mummy as as a monster movie, I was not aware that there was anything else like that going on. What's crazy is that Paramount, at the same time, Anthony Hickox was going to make The Mummy, and his was going to be, he described it as, in 1994, his Mummy movie was more like a high family adventure, the discovery of a lost city under a pyramid. The Mummy has never been portrayed quite like this. Actually, there will be many mummies. You well, know, wait a minute. That lost city under a pyramid is Beverly Hills in yeah. Barker's Mummy. That really is what happens in Barker's Mummy. And and the a, Barker one, by the way, after Barker um, wasn't going to do it, I was going to direct the script that I had developed with Clive uh, back in 1990 uh, before it finally got the nail in its coffin. Oh, that's too bad. 
because what's interesting about this Paramount thing is that this is what they ended up making. Yes. So like they a like, family friendly mummy movie. So yeah. it's like almost like they took Paramount's idea and they're like, we're gonna do this ourselves. Wait, somebody took an idea from another <laughs> studio? I've never heard of that. They should call the police. Yeah, because like you said, it was Raiders of the Lost Mummy. It yeah. what didn't it felt like you know, you could have tossed Richard Chamberlain in that movie in the eighties, you know, as like a Raiders knockoff or something. Right, right. You know? Although speaking Alan of the Summers one, yeah. <laughs> when I was reading your script, the one thing that jumped out at me as being really weird is that there's a part, actually there's a whole really fun, uh, probably the, the one part of your mummy that was the most quote unquote fun, but is where Imhotep has first come back to life and realizes that like he's now essentially in the future right? Uh, and he's walking around the city and he goes into like a 7-Eleven, um, but then- he ends up in like this room with a rabbi, and the rabbi is like speaking Hebrew or whatever. Right. And Imhotep recognizes it, and he's like, "Oh, you speak the slave language." Right. But in Stephen Summers' movie, there's a whole part where the mummy's about to kill this like uh, the kind of like cowardly sidekick character who just start like rifling through different things he's you know like i'm wearing a cross right trying to right. appeal to him and then he ends up holding up like a star of david and speaks some hebrew and he's like oh you speak the slave <laughs> language and i'm like that seemed really weird to me that of all the things from the script that somehow <laughs> survived is just this one line <laughs> and mine i got no credit yeah, <laughs> yeah damn it yeah i believe he took the beatles the scarabs from dante's version uh-huh. Sumner's, but yeah, it's interesting. Well, what I like about the scene in Garrus's script with the rabbi, it's the one scene that you start to see how complicated he is because he apologizes to the rabbi before he kills him, which is, I love that scene because immediately, oh, he's not such a monster. And it starts this, um, you get more attached to the to his character from that moment on. Yeah, he's complex. I mean, mm-hmm. and it is a romance. Yeah. And, and it's a guy who you want her to feel something for him and you want to share what she feels for him and yet you know what he's capable of and some of that is out of evil and some of that is out of necessity but I also like the way that he absorbs the knowledge of modern language too from the ancient Hebrew texts and in the the library within that sort of thing but yeah he's on a mission he's <laughs> well he is a, in, for a villain an interesting arc because because uh, the opening I guess differing from what other people have seen in other mummy movies. Um, he's in love with Anxanamen, but the deal he made with the god Set is in order to get everlasting life, he has to kill her, basically right. sacrifice her. Right. Um, and then gets caught in the middle of that, and she lives, and he gets the, you know. So audience, don't you want to see this movie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but, then, so, but then the whole love triangle between Helen and Imhotep and Mike, I, I like there's like a really devastating moment for Mike, who we like as a character, where he like finds them right after they've like had sex, and the way it's like described in the blocking is how horribly crushed he is with the look she has in the eyes and realizing that at no point because they'd been engaged <laughs> right. previously, they're like, oh, like sh- she's, she's never, never gonna love me as like much <laughs> the way she loves this horrible monster, and then even at the end, once Imhotep's dead and like the spells kind of taken off of her, it sort of at- ends almost like. This is the graduate kind of moment where she's like, oh, we've made it. Now I'll be with Mike and kind of like looks off in the distance. And again, you realize she's like, oh, but it's never really going to be as good as it was with me and the mummy. Yeah. Well, particularly for 
you know, 25 years ago or whatever it was, it was really great to have the central character being a woman, mm-hmm. and a strong woman and a complex woman. And, uh, you know, some of the secondary ones as well, uh, the one you mentioned who worked at the museum, who stole the artifacts mm-hmm. and the like. You know, it was it was progressive for its time. Yeah, and it's, it's also was going to come out before the relic. And the one thing I like about the relic is the museum setting. And that's what you have throughout this, is this museum setting. And it's just this, I don't know, there's just something about it that adds to this film, too. I mean, to the, oh, to the script as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously a lot of it took place in the museum, even in, in the Barker version. But... Um, but with this, it's just so fascinating to have the sense of history. What I think is wonderfully outrageous is that, um, you know, the woman, Hirschman, takes all of this stuff from Egypt and somehow <laughs> ships it all yeah. to the States <laughs> and rebuilds all of this in such massive uh, scale that um, you wonder, how the hell was this possible? <laughs> And her death was great, too, because, as I mentioned earlier, she's dying of cancer. And so then when Karis comes in and she realizes, she's like gets kind of excited. She's like, oh, man, I'm going to get killed this is by a an better ancient way to artifact. Yeah, this is way yeah, better this, than cancer. The, yeah. I'm getting killed by ancient history here. Exactly. And that's <laughs> what meant everything to her. And, and going back to what you just said about them bringing everything over to this museum, they were going to do the grand opening of... Of his, um, of, of the oh, in front of the press, yeah. like, yeah. and there was a great jump scare. <laughs> that oh man, to the like, oh, it would have been. Oh yeah, that was gross. Yeah, because they they pry up the lid, and it seems like the mummy's sitting up. Right. But you realize that because they'd buried Imhotep alive, he'd been clawing so feverishly at the lid. Yeah, just they're still the stuck in there. Yeah. <laughs> and I love how you write. It's like a corpse sits up. It scares the shit out of the lid bearers, and they drop the heavy lid back into place with a loud. Boom. No, I just love that. <laughs> well, that says it, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. It just, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the script is real, is so well written. And it's, oh, thank And you. it's just, I don't know, I couldn't imagine what a modern day mummy movie would have been like in the 90s. But then when I read this, I was like, oh, my God, nailed it. Like, I could, oh, thanks. I would have totally, uh, it kills me. I couldn't see this, like, on a Saturday night and then just hang out in the sidewalk with my friends talking about <laughs> it, like at Westwood or something. Tell I mean, me about it. I know. It's like, well, I remember when yeah. the... Stephen Summers one came out, my friends and I went to go see it, and I was like, well, that was fun. Like, it was, yeah. it was an entertaining movie, and it kind of had, like, horror, you know, it had more horror elements than one might expect, maybe. Right. But at the same time, it still wasn't really a horror movie. No, not at all. It it, it broke my heart, to be honest, to, yeah. to go see that movie and know what we were going to do on a very modest scale. I don't know, this movie, what did it cost, 60 or $80 million or yeah. something? Some really a lot of money and they obviously made the right commercial choice it made them a lot of money in a couple of sequels and and the like but it just felt like that's not the mummy Mm -hmm. that's not you know the mummy's part of a a tradition of fear and and horror and mystery and it became, you know, a, a low-rent uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones movie, and low-rent, I say, when <laughs> I was going to do a $15 million version. See, all I really want is for them to just kind of make, kind of like happened in the 80s, briefly, uh, with the thing, the fly, and the blob, is yeah. that people did these somewhat radical reimaginings that also still, but like, 
were very faithful in their tone and just absolutely. attitude. I, absolutely. I think, you know, The Thing and The Fly, you don't get better horror movies mm-hmm. than that. Mm-hmm. And they came from those tawdry 1950s sources. Mm-hmm. You know, those weren't A pictures. I mean, The Thing was an expensive picture in its day. Uh, and it was, they bragged about, what was it, two years in the making or something like that. But, but um, they were great movies and were unashamedly horror movies as well. And uh, to just see them become family-friendly fare is, is distressing. The whole mm-hmm. universal monster universe as a thing just depresses me and makes me sad. Well, in that sense, I was happy that the Tom Cruise one did poorly, yeah, <laughs> because I, you know, we'll see how it turns out. But I at least like that now the Invisible Man is moving over. I think Blumhouse is doing it with ah, Lee Whannell. Yeah, at least um, they care about the yeah. genre. Yeah. So, but you know, Bill Condon was going to do Bride of Frankenstein. I thought that would be fantastic. I don't know if that's still on the boards or not. That was but. supposed to be after I believe the Mummy with. Um, well, I hope he Tom still does it, but yeah. now that they've dropped the dark universe thing yeah. i bet he'll have the freedom to make more of the movie he probably wants to make yeah and he's sure... so passionate about the genre and knowledgeable about it i would love to see what he does i mean gods and monsters really showed uh, a passion mm-hmm. for all of this stuff that that you don't get when you watch brendan fraser yeah. <laughs> and don't forget about victor frankenstein and dracula untold uh, <laughs> oh, uh, can't i yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well it's sad this movie didn't get made, but I'm glad we got to talk about it. Me yeah. too. Here. Do you Me have any too. final words to add, Steve? Oh, no. I mean, after Mick Garris, it, uh, it went to two other writers, the the guys who did um, actually the, the Bride from 1984. And, oh, wow. And another writer who did Tombstone and Glory. I'm so sorry. I don't have their names in front of me. And their attempt went back to like 1920s, 1930s, and then that's where Sumner came in and picked up from Summers. Summers, yeah. Summers excuse me. I say every name wrong, <laughs> and everyone's going to rip me apart. Our, I haven't said sorry. mine wrong, our so listeners, I Our <laughs> listeners are very upset with your pronounce, pronunciation of Toby Hooper's Yeah, and I pronounce everything. It's this, yeah. Don't say Tobe. It says Tobe. Don't <laughs> say I'm sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's where, where we come up and uh, to I don't know what happened after that exactly it would be like a whole other show what leads us to the dark universe well then so. there was also Russell McCahey's The Mummy that came oh. out at the same time as that's right. oh, yeah, Stephen 19- Summers 1990 there was three mummy movies there was the guy who did Nausea he did The Eternal that came out that same year and, ah. then, de- and then Bram Stoker's The Mummy with Louis Gossett Jr. with oh, the, right, the right. guy who did the kin- the Kindred. It's just funny all these all the years of people trying to make mummy movies, then all of a sudden there's a, <clears throat> they make a bunch too of many them. mummy <laughs> movies. Yeah. But they made yeah. one in ni- Canon Films made one in '93. I didn't even know about Canon. Yeah, um, or Golan. I'm gonna say his name wrong. I'm gonna keep it going. Golan Globus. Yeah, uh, I I've, I don't have it here, but yeah, I think it's it's somewhere around here. Anyway, yeah, that there was one in '93 um, as well. So. Uh, what's it called? Oh, the Mummy Lives. Oh well, with Tony, Tony <laughs> Curtis. Actually, it was, oh, it, that's right. Anth- oh, Ken Russell was going to direct it, and then <laughs> Anthony Perkins was going to star. When he passed away, Tony Curtis took over his role. So wow, that was that one. <laughs> so well, anyway. at least it was a Tony. Yeah, yeah. and then they were going to make a Quasimodo in the 1990s, which was interesting. Alfonso Arau. Uh, Arau, yeah, yeah, he was going to make one and. 
And then there was going to be a back-to-back Hunchback and Quasimodo with Robert England in another canon movie. That wow. was going to be all in the '90s while you you were doing all this. <laughs> well, Canon was constantly announcing movies that never yeah. got made you know, with people. Oh, they're, you know. they're a real boon to us on this show. <laughs> oh, I bet they are. Uh, they're big they spread ads and yeah. fake posters. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And then uh, they, were, they were trying to make a Van Helsing with Anthony Hopkins. I'm stopping there. <laughs> oh, stop, I'm sorry. I get there. Sorry. Um, save it for other episodes, yeah. Steve. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for coming by, Mick. Uh, where can people us. find you on the socials? Okay, well, Postmortem with Mick Garris is uh, on Apple Podcasts and all those other places. Uh, Postmortem Graham on Instagram, Postmortem MG on Twitter, and on Facebook, uh, Postmortem with Mick Garris. So, uh, and I, I do have a website that has all of my old interviews from the Z channel from the 70s and 80s and lots of other things, the documentaries I've done at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Fantastic. And Nightmare Cinema, <laughs> yes. June yeah. 21st. Yeah. Check that out. Definitely check out his podcast. It's phenomenal. <laughs> Thank you so thing. much. Um, well, and you can find Best Movies Never Made on Instagram, and you can also find us on Twitter uh, under Never Made Film. Uh, thanks for joining us here at Best Movies Never Made. If you like us, uh, why don't you subscribe to us? And why don't you also check out Electric Surge's other podcasts, like the 430 Movie every Friday, in which a group of writers and producers curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies, and Inglorious Trexperts, the only podcast for Star Trek fans with a life, available every Saturday wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, a special thanks to Bill Ritter and everyone here at Electric Surge Network, including our producers Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman. So until next time, This is Steven Scarlatta. And I'm Josh Miller saying we won't see you at the movies. This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.